Church Online, we're so glad that you are joining us tonight. And at this time, we're going to get ready to receive our tithes and offerings. And you know, one of my favorite stories in the, in the Bible has to do with food. And it's, of course, the feeding of the 5,000. And some of you may know the story, some of you may not. And what happens in this story is Jesus is speaking to a multitude of people. In fact, the Bible actually says that the number 5,000 was just the guys that was counted. And so there's actually more than 5,000 people there. And as the day goes on and people are listening to Jesus, Jesus sees that they're starting to get hungry. He looks at his disciples and he says, you know, my heart's desire is that uh, they wouldn't be tired, they wouldn't be hungry. So go get them something to eat. I don't know about you, but if you're one of the 12 disciples that was there and Jesus said, hey, go get them something to eat. And you realize there's more than 5,000 people. You might be going, well, where do we even start? There's no extra value meal. There's no, there's no fast food restaurants. There's none of that. What do we do? And so as the story goes, they find a young little boy with two fish and five loaves of bread. And I know you're probably thinking, well, that in itself is not a lot. I mean, I have five kids, and I know for myself that that five loaves of bread and two fish might not even feed all of them. How is it going to feed five over 5,000 people? But here's what happens. The disciples bring offering that the boy brought, the five loaves of bread and the two fish, and they bring them to Jesus. They say, Lord, this is all we got. And, and what's so amazing is that Jesus doesn't say, that's it? That's how you're going to bring me? No, what does he do? He takes it, gives thanks to our Father in heaven, and then they pass it out. And what's so amazing is that not only does it feed over 5,000 people, there's actually leftovers. You see, what's so amazing about our God is that he does so many great things, even in small amounts. And when we give our tithes and offerings, I know for some of us, it might, it, it might sound hard. How do we do this? How do we give it unto God? Well, can, can I encourage you in this? It's not the amount that we give that we should be concerned with. That shouldn't be what, what worries us or we, 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 we fight with. Instead, look at what God can do with it. Look at the lives of people that he's going to touch as we continue to be faithful and give to him our tithes and offerings. He's not done yet. He's still working hard to reach people, to bring them a new hope. So as we continue to give our tithes and offerings, let us remember that our God is the one that goes beyond, touches lives, he allows us to be a part of that plan. Would you bow your heads as we, play, we pray for our tithes and offerings? Lord, we come before you right now, Lord, and we thank you so much, Lord, that you are our God, and Lord, you do great things because you are our great God. And so, Lord, right now, as we give you our tithes and offerings, Lord, we do so not focused on what we're giving, but more importantly, focusing on who you are, the one that we're giving it to, Lord. Because we know with you, Lord, you do great things. You're going to reach more and more people so that they can find hope, real hope, in you. And Lord, you allow us to be part of your plan to reaching those people. And so, Lord, we give right now as with cheerful hearts, knowing that, Lord, you're going to take it and you're going to touch and change lives for all of eternity. What a joy that is. As Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we continue to look forward to what you're going to continue to do. In Jesus' name.
Amen. And once again, there are four ways that you can give. You can give on our website. You can give through our app. You can even sign up uh, through our text to give where it sets up a profile. Or you can even still email your checks to our church office here at 840 Kupalau Road. Tonight, we are continuing our series as we go through the Bible. And Christian will be actually talk, be sharing about Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy. But before he gets up here, let's enjoy this video of the Bible Project that shares the heart of 1 Timothy. Paul's first letter to Timothy. Paul spent many years traveling about and starting new churches, and he developed a large team of co-workers in this mission. Timothy was one of these. Paul was once in the city of Lystra, and he met Timothy's faithful mother and grandmother, and he was impressed by Timothy's passion and devotion to Jesus. And so Paul mentored him for many years and eventually started sending him on missions to different churches. And so when Paul got word about a group of leaders who infiltrated the influential church in Ephesus, they were spreading incorrect views about Jesus and what it means to follow him, he sent Timothy to confront these leaders and restore order to this church. So after Timothy arrived there, Paul sent this letter to follow up and instruct him on how to fulfill this mission. The letter has a really cool design. There's an opening and closing commission to Timothy to go confront these leaders and their bad theology. And then these surround two large central sections that are full of really practical instructions about the problems that Timothy faced in the Ephesian church. And then finally, all these sections are linked together or concluded by a series of three poems that each exalt the risen Jesus as the king of the world. Let's dive in and you'll see how it works. Paul opens by recalling how he sent Timothy to Ephesus to confront these leaders who were spreading their strange teaching. And he describes how these guys are obsessed with speculating about the Torah, specifically the early stories and genealogies in the book of Genesis. And as we'll see, they had developed all kinds of weird teachings about food and marriage and sex that weren't consistent with the teachings of Jesus or the apostles. He even names some of these people, Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he describes how their teaching has divided the church, it's generated controversy. And Paul says this is actually the first clear sign that their teaching is distorted. When genuine Christian teaching is done, it's faithful to the way of Jesus and it results in love and genuine faith. And he says the purpose of the Torah anyway isn't to fuel speculation. Rather, its purpose is to expose the truth about the human condition, as it did for Paul. Correct teaching about the Torah will lead people to see the grace of God revealed in the Messiah who came to save sinful, broken people. And so Paul closes here with a poem that honors King Jesus over all, and he calls Timothy to shut these men and their false teaching down. He then addresses very specific problems in this church caused by the false teachers. First of all, he calls Timothy to hold regular church prayer gatherings, to pray for the governing leaders of Rome, and for peace. Because peace in the land, it creates an ideal setting for Jesus' followers to keep spreading their message about the God of peace, who wants all people to be saved, the God who sent Jesus as the only mediator to give his life as a ransom for all. In contrast to the false teachers, Paul reminds Timothy that God wants to rescue the whole world, and prayer is going to keep this at the forefront of their minds. Paul then addresses problems related to men and women who are being influenced by these corrupt leaders in Ephesus. So he first shuts down a group of men who were getting drawn into angry theological disputes started by the teachers. He says these guys should learn how to pray. 
Then he confronts a group of wealthy women in the church who were treating the Sunday gathering like a fashion show. They were dressing so upscale that they would shame most of the other people who couldn't afford such a wardrobe. And not only that, but some of these women were also usurping leadership positions in the church, and they were teaching others the bad theology of the corrupt teachers. And so Paul shuts these women down. He says they should not teach or lead in the church. And then he goes on to explore the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is one of those sections in Paul's letters where, like Peter said, he's kind of hard to understand. There are many different views about what Paul meant here. Some think that Paul is prohibiting women from ever teaching or leading men in any church, and that his comments about Adam and Eve are about how God has ordered that only men should be leaders in the church. There are others who think that Paul is prohibiting women from having leadership authority over men in a church, but that once educated women should and can teach as leaders in a church under male leadership. And there are still others who think that Paul is only prohibiting these women in Ephesus, and that his comments about Adam and Eve are a comparison of how these women have been deceived by the false teachers. Whichever view you take, Paul is clear that these Ephesian women need to come under Timothy's leadership and get a proper theological education. And the goal is to help them grow so that they could one day become like the outstanding female ministers that Paul mentions in his other letters, like Phoebe or Junia or Priscilla. Paul continues to address this leadership crisis, and he calls Timothy to appoint a small, healthy team of husbands and fathers who will act like elders or overseers for the church. These should be men of outstanding character and integrity, and they will work alongside a team of deacons. It's a Greek word that means servant. And these are men and women who actually lead and do the ministries of the church, and they are to have the same kind of character as the elders. And all together, these people should be known for healthy relationships in their families, because that will demonstrate their ability to lead in the church, which is God's family. And the way of life that they live all together, it's consistent with the story about Jesus, which is explored in the closing poem, about his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation as king, and then the spread of his new family throughout the whole world. Paul's second body of instructions for Timothy are, again, very specific to the problems caused by these bad leaders. So he first corrects their bad theology. They've been telling people to stop eating certain kinds of foods, most likely meat, and to stop getting married, which Paul thinks is ridiculous. So he goes to Genesis 1, and he reminds Timothy that God's entire creation is very good, including food and marriage. It is all to be received with gratefulness by those who know and give thanks to the Creator. Paul then moves on to address problems about the church's care of widows. So this very important ministry was being taken advantage of by younger, wealthy widows, most likely the same troublemaking women from chapter 2. They would sign up for the church's support, but then spend their days sleeping around, spreading gossip, and damaging the church's reputation in the city. Paul is having none of it. He says that only older widows that have no other family support qualify, and for these, the church should show the love and generosity of Jesus. Paul then addresses problems among some older men in the church, and Timothy is to respect their age, but not their misbehavior, 
which seems to be alcohol-related. They're damaging the church's reputation in Ephesus. And so Timothy is in love to confront them and have them step down if they're in leadership. And then Paul adds this interesting side note that this doesn't mean that Timothy himself should never drink. Given his stomach problems, he should probably have a glass of wine each night with dinner. Paul then addresses a problem among Christian slaves. Some of them were disrespecting their Christian masters. And so, yes, the gospel creates equality among Jesus' followers. However, Paul thinks that equality needs to be implemented in a strategic way that doesn't compromise the mission and witness of the church. If Christians become associated with slave rebellions, they are compromised. The Christian transformation of the Roman household had to be implemented strategically so that their neighbors could be persuaded and not repulsed by this new vision of God's family. Finally, Paul closes the letter by calling Timothy again to confront the corrupt leaders. Paul here exposes their motives to make lots of money by accumulating followers and then charging them all high rates for their teaching. These teachers betray Jesus and his message of contentment and simple living. And so Paul instructs the wealthy Ephesian Christians to become rich in good works and generosity, to be people who submit all of their resources to King Jesus, and he's the one who inspires the final poem about how he is the true king above all other kings. First Timothy is a really important letter. It helps us gain a holistic vision of the nature and mission of the church. So what a Jesus community believes will directly shape how that community lives and behaves in its city. And so its theology, its beliefs have to be constantly critiqued and formed by the scriptures and the good news about Jesus. And how the church is perceived in public is also very important to Paul. Christians should be known as people who are full of integrity, known for good works, known for serving the poor and the most vulnerable, all out of devotion to the risen King Jesus. And that's what 1 Timothy is all about. The book of 1 Timothy. Man, it's such an amazing book. Um, there's so many things to say about it. Um, if you've never read through the book of 1 Timothy, I would encourage you right after this message to dive in. Um, don't worry if you're one of those people that's like, oh, I don't want to read. It's only like five pages, depending on your Bible. So, um, but those five pages are packed with things. But like they said in the video, when I was going over the message, or going over the overview and reading through First Timothy, on the surface, it almost is like, how can I apply this to my life? Because the book of First Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote, and a very personal letter that Paul wrote to someone else about how to fix and build a church. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not Timothy, so there's some things in there like, you know, the wine, because my stomach problems, that doesn't really apply to me. But more than that, you know, I'm not really in a position to appoint church elders or to fix the church. So how does this apply to me? Well, as I read through it, I found that Paul's letter to Timothy is a great example of how we should act in tough situations and in conflict. Because Paul, like we heard in that video, is sending Timothy into a big problem area. So, let's get into it. The church in Ephesus was dealing with all kinds of problems. Misinformation, people taking advantage of the church, um, drunkenness, disorder, pride, vanity, just straight conflict. 
And these are things that we might encounter in our daily lives too. When it comes to me, this is a big area where I had to learn a lot. So I'll also be learning along with you during this message. That being said, the first thing that Paul puts forth when it comes to what to do in the church of Ephesus is to always be praying. The first thing that Paul puts forth. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, we can see him say, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all possible or all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul is really, really big on prayer. And if you take nothing else from my message tonight, always be praying. See, prayer is our connection to God. It's our opportunity to speak to God. Now, what I'm not saying is, if you're in the middle of conflict, to drop on your knees and throw your hands up to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, that might just make the conflict worse. What I am saying is this. We should always be talking to God. We should always be praying. This is such a big deal for Paul that he mentions it throughout many of his letters and books. But we should always be praying. So, that being said, how does praying through conflict help, you might be saying? Well, in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, it shows how when we pray, it actually helps us heal in that way. It goes like this. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will, re the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When we pray for the people that we're in contact with or whenever there is conflict, when we pray for it, many different things happen. One is it helps us heal. Two, we speak with God and we try and we learn his will for how to proceed in that. But prayer is not an easy thing. You might be like me and might be saying, hey, prayer sometimes feels kind of uncomfortable, kind of feels unnatural. And don't worry. I've known the Lord for a long time. And prayer for me still feels kind of uncomfortable. If you're a new believer, or even if you've been walking a little bit and you struggle with prayer, I'm right there with you. But let me encourage you with this. Prayer is a conversation with God. Prayer is us talking with someone. If you went up to a random stranger and tried to have a very deep and heartfelt conversation with them, it would be a bit awkward too. But as we grow in our relationship with Him, it gets easier. As we grow and understand his heart for us, it gets easier. I invite you, and this is kind of 
I don't like this, but if ever you feel bad about your prayer, always you can watch me pray and you can see, man, I struggle with prayer too. But in the end, it's us talking to our Lord. It's us communicating with our God. When it comes to conflict, it's always good to know what the path is forward we should take. And the best way to do that is by praying. As we continue in the book, Paul talks about one extra thing. Or he continues on and he says, in the book, or, as we continue on in the book, Paul puts forth and put Paul puts forth another thing, sorry. And it's this. It's to be the example. Now remember, a while ago, one of my friends came to me and, asked, and was telling me about this conflict that they're in, about all of this bad stuff, and about how they're having a hard time with it. And they said, oh, Christian, what do you think? And before I could say anything, they said, they said hey, what does the Bible say? And I was like, oh. Because the Bible says to be the example of Christ. And for me, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes when I'm in the middle of a conflict, I want to not be the shining example for Christ. You know, I want to throw the mud that they're throwing at me. But the Bible calls us to be that example of Christ. Paul makes this clear to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. And you might know this verse because it's a very famous verse. Some people take it for the inspiration, and certainly I take it for the inspiration that it gave. And it says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And the first time I read that, I was like, Yeah, don't look down on me because I'm young. And certainly you might take that and think, You know, that's awesome. But you might be there and you might think, well, I'm not young. Well, youth means different things to different people. If you ask some of the kids in Relentless, I'm an old man at 24. But I'll say this. As I read into that scripture more and more, I realized that it's not only an encouragement, but it's also kind of a challenge. Where it says, despite your youth, be an example. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And when I thought about that, I was like, man, Lord, that changed my whole perspective on the scripture because in conflict, it doesn't matter how young I am. I should still try and be that example. And again, you might think, oh, I'm not young, I'm old, or I'm this or that. You can substitute. Don't let people look down on you because of your past. Don't let people look down on you because of and answer that. Be an example. That is the key thing here. Well, what does that example look like? Well, in 1 Timothy 3, 2-4, I'm just going to highlight what Paul kind of says is a man above reproach. And this is kind of a hard metric and a hard example, but this is how it goes. It says, now the overseer is to be above repro a reproach. 
faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a, mather, in a manner worthy of full respect. This talks about those who wish to be leaders in the church. And you might say, well, I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a leader. And I get that. Believe me, of all people, I get not wanting to be a pastor. But that doesn't mean that that's not what we should be aiming for. See, those are the requirements. But that is the life that we should all be trying to aim for. Well, how do we do that? First, we've got to make sure that, especially in conflict, that our information is coming from Jesus and the Bible. We should draw from the principles of the scripture. See, in Ephesus, people were starting to get twisted because they were following all kinds of strange misinformation, all kinds of strange ideologies. And Paul is trying to tell Timothy, don't go, don't get caught up in all of that. Remember what is true. Remember the Bible, remember the scriptures. In 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 5, it says, as I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial, specula controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of Scripture is to promote genuine love and unity through faith. While there are rules in the Bible so that we don't fall into sin or ruin, they aren't meant to divide us as followers of God. And while there may be areas of the book or of the Bible where we might disagree on, for example, there is one in 1 Timothy that isn't meant to divide us. And as you dive into 1 Timothy, you might encounter um, that part where it talks about women teaching in church. And while I won't be touching over it personally, feel free to ask questions about it in the chat. Because we have many pastors who would love to talk to you about it. And I, for one, I'm a person who loves to ask questions. So if you have that question in your heart, ask it. The second part of being an example is respect. And this is the hard part because, at least for me, I'm a pretty vindictive and petty person sometimes. And I feel like sometimes when I don't get the respect that I did, when I don't get the respect that I want to get, I can kind of get like, ooh, like, all right. But we're called to be that example. We're called to still show that respect. I love how it says it in 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2. It says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Don't get it twisted. Many of the people in this church were doing bad things, things that were causing a bad reputation for the church. But Paul is urging Timothy, hey, listen, don't go in there and harshly, you know, tear everyone down. 
but do it in love. Do it with respect. And that spoke to me. That said, listen, even if you're 100% in the right, or you feel you're 100% in the right, as a Christian, we should still respect others. Finally, in the book, Paul urges Timothy to continue to grow in his own relationship in the Lord. And for us, when it comes to a conflict, we also should look for opportunities to grow in our relationship with the Lord. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, it talks about it this way. It says, Have nothing to do with the godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And I love that scripture because Paul keeps urging Timothy, listen, as much as we want to train up our physical bodies, as much or as important as it is to train that up, we can't neglect training our spiritual bodies. Well, why is it important to continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord, especially in conflict? Why should we keep growing? Well, because I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. I'm not always the perfect example of Christ in conflict. I'm not always praying when I should be praying. But the important thing is to be and look for those opportunities to say, hey, listen, God, I fell short in here. I want to be better. When I was reading through First Timothy and he ta- started talking about um, overseers and deacons, that reminded me that I should also find people in my life that one will keep me accountable because I'm not a perfect person. And although I want to be, it takes work and it takes growth. And the second thing is to find people we'd like to look like. And not them, but Christ in them. Thankfully for us, Christianity is not a one-man thing or one-person thing. Christianity is something that we do together as the church. And in that way, we help build each other up. In relationship, we can help guide each other and put each other back on the right path. That's the amazing thing about the church. Well, with that being said, there are three reflection questions that I would just like to go through with you. And some of these might be hard to share in a group, but hey, if you can, that's awesome. The first reflection question is this. What are some areas in your life that you need to pray through? And if you're here and saying, I pray through everything, amazing. But I know for me, there's always some areas that I'm kind of keeping from God that I need to pray through. The second is this. What traits do you admire in other followers of Jesus? 
For us to be an example, we have to find an example. And sometimes the best example we can find is other people who are following Jesus. And third, are there aspects of your relationship with Jesus that you continue to struggle with? And why? Listen, the only way we grow is by finding those areas where we're having a hard time with growing. Because that's where we have to get bigger in it. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray and I thank you so much for being a God that is with us throughout everything. For being a God that is without, with us throughout conflict, for being a God who is with us through the hard times and the good times. And Lord, I just pray that as we go through conflict, that we would remember, one, to pray, to seek your counsel, to seek your guidance, and to ask for your healing. Lord, I pray also that you would give us the strength to be that example of you. Because in that conflict, Maybe that's where you want to shine out through us. And finally, Lord, I pray that you'd instill in all of us a hunger to continue growing in our relationship with you. Because that relationship is the most important relationship that we will ever have. So I thank you. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.